These are the sounds of elephant feeding in the woodland with an angry female leopard roaring in the background. They remind me of one of my most thrilling adventures. While traveling in Southern Africa, I went on a plant collecting expedition in a fluvial diamond mine in the south of Namibia. We spent our first night sleeping under the open sky on a dry riverbed, lulled by the sounds of distant growls. On a previous expedition, one of the botanists had lost a piece of her boot to a curious leopard looking for a morsel. Nothing really happened, but the story stuck. Plants, although a source of endless fascination, are no match for savanna predators. But like Pope Francis said during his 2015 visit to Kenya, what I fear the most in Africa are mosquitoes. Since the pandemic started, I keep playing back in my mind not just memories of that botanical expedition, but of all the African safaris I have done. They remain my favorite journeys. The smell of grass at dawn while tracking white rhino on foot, the intense gaze of a lioness as it passed by the side of our Jeep, or looking for honeycombs in baobab trees. These images make me reflect on our place in the world and its resources. Today, I am talking to Nikki Fitzgerald, owner of Angama Mara, a safari lodge perched on the edge of the Rift Valley overlooking the Mara Triangle in the south of Kenya. After building more than 50 lodges, Nikki and her late husband Steve abandoned retirement in 2009, lucky us, to build one more lodge and Angama Mara was born. Nikki's experience in the safari world is unparalleled and her zest for life comes through in her stories. Where the Mara gets its name, a surprising encounter with an elephant mare, or why looking at plants and birds lead to the elusive big cats. This is the first of a two-part episode about the Mara. So please come back next week for part two. But today, stick around and at the end of this podcast, learn about a special offer. Whether you're listening from your car, your sofa, or your peloton bike, wherever you are in the world, you are in for a great adventure in the Mara. Good morning, Nikki. Good morning. Good morning. How lovely to hear your voice all the way in Hawaii. How lovely to hear your voice, which I have not forgotten, <laughs> I must say. <laughs> We're on different ends of the world, you and I. It's amazing. Isn't that amazing? I can't believe it. And here we are. I'm standing here outside. I've just had coffee and breakfast and you're drinking martinis looking at the moon. I yes. love this world. I love the fact that we can all keep in touch. It doesn't matter where we are, where, where we're going. We're all, we're all one. I, I find technology so helpful, especially now that we, yeah. we can't see each other personally. This is a, a fantastic way of, and a voice, it's, it's still wonderful to, to hear. It brings so many memories. All right. So Martini Recipe is on my blog, but for now... Let's discuss Kenya. Kenya is open, which is fantastic. And, it, you know, um, it's not on the red list for the UK. And um, that means, you know, everything up to the northern border of Tanzania is painted red and, and not allowed from the UK. But Kenya still seems to manage to sort of tuck in below the radar and, and life kind of potters along. That's great. There, which is great. That's great. Steve and I had retired, gosh, yeah. in 2009 from the safari industry, having opened and operated nearly 60 properties. 
And then there was just this one last piece of land that he loved so much. And he said, come on, in 2013, it's available. Let's build one more. So we came out of retirement and um, he got the uh, 25-year lease on this beautiful piece of land overlooking the Masamara in Kenya, perched high up on the edge of the Rift Valley. I mean, it's their views to stop your heart. And, um, and yeah, two crazy old people. We started all over again and Angama is our 60th property and I should say our most loved. Yes. I was reading on, on your blog, which you rightfully called digital journal or online journal, I should say, because the word blog is quite awful. Actually, I agree with you on that. In Swahili, <laughs> the word Mara means spotted land and it comes from the desert date, the tree. Yes, it's an indigenous tree that is, and, and mm -hmm. there are just a few of them. So you've got this yes. great open plain. So you've got these Balanites um, um, trees that dot the Mara, and that's why it's called Spotted Plain. Mm -hmm. So you've got these trees that dot it, and um, and then open grasslands all around. The, the scenery is is quite beautiful because mm -hmm. you've got the Rift Valley always there, um, which reminds you of, of our the history of our planet or the sort of the, the formation of our, of our planet. And then these beautiful rolling grasslands dotted with these Balanites trees, which are perfect for picnics. They, they, were, they were designed as picnic tree. If you could actually dream up a picnic tree, you would, you, would, you, would, you would know exactly what a Balanites looks like. It's just enough shade. There's always, because um, the, the animals congregate under the trees, of course, the grass is always flat and has been well sort of mowed down by the animals. So you can spread your picnic blanket and there you are in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by, by Africa's... Beautiful. Beautiful. Why, do, why is it a reminder of the creation of our planet? Mm -hmm. Because the, the Rift Valley is, you know, it's volcanic. You've got, you've got volcanoes, you've got the Ngorongoro Crater, you've got mm -hmm. the Rift Valley Lakes, you've got the Rift Valley itself. So, you know, and, and by, by all yes. accounts, you know, this is where we started in, in Tanzania, which where we as a species, well, I'm many... I think three or four million years ago, we got up on our on our hind legs and said, "There's more to life than just walking around mm -hmm. on all fours. Let's go walk about." And the um, Laetoli footprints, which are the are the earliest uh, sign of of bipedal apes, is in Tanzania, just down the drag from us in in the Rift Valley. So, it kind of yeah, it's where we all came from, and so that's why we <laughs> can always say to our guests, "Welcome home." And they get a little bit sort of taken aback and they say, well, why welcome her? We say, well, this is where we all started. We started right here. And then, of course, our, our, our ancestors walked, walked up the Rift Valley and, and just kept walking and then got to the Northern Hemisphere. Some turned left and some turned right. So, yeah, that's where it all, it all started. And, of course, the Leakeys did some fantastic work in Lake Turkana um, in, in you know, early man discovery. So, yeah, it's an ancient, ancient place. That's so beautiful to have that image in, in our minds, that picnic especially, because I went through your cookbook, which you published a few years ago. And, of course, I have a lot of questions about that all-day-twice picnic that you do. Yes, that's what we call a double picnic day. It's the best day. We say to our guests, "Come on, okay, mm -hmm. come on, up out early. Watch the sunrise. All the be the beds, the, the rooms fade, the tents face east, and you lie in bed and you and you watch the, the 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 dawn slowly breaking. It's beautiful pink dawn in Africa. And then you have a little coffee, and then you get dressed to seven. You jump on your safari vehicle and packed in the safari vehicle lunch. Go. We don't want to see you for the rest of the day. Come back." at 6.30 when the sun is setting. And um, because the, 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 the climate is so temperate mm -hmm. in the Mara, 
we're just a couple of degrees mm-hmm. south of the equator. I mean, in, 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 in sort of our speak, a very hot day would be 28 degrees and a very, very cold day would be 12 degrees. So I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit, yes. but I'm sure you can, you know, you know these things. So the weather is beautifully mild and, um, you know, and you just drive and you drive, you don't have a plan. You just drive and drive and you find a tree at about 830 and you put out your, you know, the picnic breakfast and then after breakfast and a lovely Kenyan coffee, you get back on the vehicle and you drive some more and stop and watch animals. You sit with a family of 50 or 60 elephants and interaction and you just keep going until you get to Tanzania and then you can't go any further. So you have to have that that shot. You know, it's one of those things where you stand on one of the concrete bollards that marks the border between mm-hmm. Tanzania and Kenya or um, in sort of game game talk between the Masai Mara and the mighty Serengeti. And mm-hmm. you stand there with one foot in Tanzania and one foot in Kenya. Then you carry on and you find another tree, maybe this time near the river, the Mara River, and uh-huh. you have lunch after lunch. And then you get back into your safari vehicle and you patter along some more. So it's a, it's a gorgeous day. That's beautiful. It's got no program. And the game viewing in the Mara, unlike in Southern Africa, mm-hmm. where um, it gets very hot during the day, then the, animal, the animals all sort of tuck away in the shade. Yeah. And, you know, you, as you well know, there's nothing more tiresome than watching sleeping lions <laughs> because they, you know, if they flick an ear, that's great. That's big action. So, but because the in the Mara, not so hot. The animals are active all day. And I also read that the landscape, you can go from a forest to a surrounding marshes. I didn't realize that the, the, the variety of, the, of nature is so wide. Yes. So the, the Mara itself once was apparently a great forest, which is incredible to think about it now. And they say probably due mostly to climate change and, and um, you know, rainfall and those kind of things over the years, it's, it's turned from a forest in, into an open grassland. But along the Mara River, which is very famous for its um, wildebeest, and there are beautiful riverine forests with towering trees. And please, Paula, don't ask me what the names of these trees mm-hmm. are. But um, lots of lots of fig trees and um, you know, huge trees and great for birding so along the on, on both sides of the of the Mara River you've probably got about 20 or 30 meters up to 50 meters of of dense forestation and then all through the through the Mara system there are marshlands and that's also great for um, all the water birds so all the birds that you know come in and 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 fish the herons and the storks um, and the cranes, they're all, they're all around in, in, in the marshlands. So you've got this wonderful varied habitat of open grassland, thick riverine forests and, and marshes, greatly varied. Um, so it makes for a very interesting, when you do that double mm-hmm. picnic day, you, you really feel that you're going from one magical kingdom to the next. Wow. Because the idea that most of us have in our minds, when we think of safari, we think only of grassland and a few trees here and there. So we never think of a safari in a forest. Am I right? Very. And as I said, um, particularly for people who are interested yes. in birds, because, you know, the, the big eagles prefer the open grasslands because they can, you know, fly over the vultures and eagles and they're the raptors and they can, you know, see their prey below. And then you've got all the, the beautiful in the forest. You've got the trogons and the mm-hmm. turacos and colorful, exotic, beautiful birds. And then out in the, as I said, in the marshes earlier, you get the, yeah. the waders for, for, for small fish and for frogs. So um, you get this wonderful diversity of both. And, um, and, and when wildlife. people visit um, Angamamara, receive a lot of birders. Do people want to see the big five? Mostly at Angama, I would say 80% of our guests 
are coming to see, uh, yes, the big five, yeah. but also the great herds, um, you know, great herds of, of buffalo. So not just let's find one lovely buffalo, let's sit amongst a herd of buffalo or a great family of elephants. So I think the people who come to the Mara are, are looking for and do experience a multitude of, 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 of I mean, they're just hundreds of mm-hmm. everything. And that's what makes it so beautiful. Um, you do get people who want to take off the big five, and we are very respectful of that, even though it's um, it's probably a little kind of overdone, the big five um, uh, thing, but people want to see it. And once they've seen it, they're kind of relaxed. Okay, now we've seen that. We've ticked those five off. Now let's sit with a family of elephants for two hours and just watch how they interact. So, And then as you progress through your safari life as a guest, you know, if, yes. if Africa bites you, which it bites many people, in, in a good sense, let me quickly put that in. Um, you will eventually progress to um, to birding because you'll find that when you start concentrating on birds, the animals appear just by chance. So because you're not out there looking for a leopard, so you're in the river because the leopards love mm-hmm. obviously the leopards love the riverine forests. So if you're out birding and you're, you're focusing on the birds, and suddenly someone will say, "Oh, there's a leopard in that tree over there." So that becomes sort of the leopard is there, but it becomes a secondary excitement. But because you're spending you know, birders slow everything down. I mean, if you're a birder, yes. you you know, you take lots of time and you, you you know, you look and find the bird and then you identify the bird and then you look in the book <laughs> and then you listen to the call and you do all those things that birders do. Yeah. And because you're slowing down the safari, you see the, you, you'll find animals like leopards, which need a bit of work and need you to slow down. You know, you can't just zoom along and see a leopard usually. You've got to work hard for them. So, um yeah, and then eventually what they do, uh, so you start off sort of big five, big herds, then you go to birds, then you go to trees, and then the the, the guests eventually the the guests probably more along your your kind of per, per, you know like you they progress to grasses, and then that's when then I check out because. When they hit the grasses, then I know that I'm I'm completely out of my league. <laughs> One grass from another. But you're right because sometimes when I've been on safari, I I start over focusing like a predator. It's like, where are the lions? You know, where are the lions? And in reality, if we think a little bit like prey, you know, like yeah. oh, okay, well, maybe we should look at these grasses yeah. here, look at the tree. Also, I mean, in the in the Mara particularly, um, after the rains, the mm-hmm. flowers are beautiful too. And there's a little white flower called the tissue paper flower. And you know, I'm, uh, you know, being a hotelier, I'm absolutely fanatical <laughs> about litter. So you know, driving through the Mara, and I say to the guy, stop, stop, stop. And he says, Mama, it's just a tissue paper flower. <laughs> and we keep driving. It's it's a it's a little it looks like a little begonia type type of flower, smaller. And um it's scattered across the, the Mara and the Serengeti. And I'm ready to jump out and pick it up and put it into a paper bag, but it's just a flower. There's always a surprise. And then when you go into when you go into the forest, you find mushrooms, I mean, uh, that you've never seen before, it's the right. size of plates. And you think, gosh, you know. I wonder if I could feed. I wonder if I could harvest these and feed my guests. And then of course, I never do because I'm terrified. No. Can you imagine if I killed no. all my guests with one large mushroom? But keeping guests safe is is critical. And I, you know, many people who first times to Africa, they come with all sorts of anxieties about safety and, you know, will I be safe? And 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 when I ask them, I'm safe from what? Mm-hmm. They'll say, oh, and they'll maybe say, you know, I don't know. And I say, well, have you ever thought about being biffed by a buffalo? And they go, oh, no. I said, well, if you, you must worry about the right things in, in Africa. Don't worry, don't worry about things that are not going to happen. 
you know, you can take a prophylactic for malaria if you want to, and you can spray and you can do all those things. But don't worry about things that are, that are, are most unlikely to happen and actually you have no control exactly. over. So, um, but what has been interesting is, um, you know, this, this pandemic has turned the world as we know it and love yeah. it on its head. The whole issue of safety now is... Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's become so intangible and so yes. unexpected that to, yes, of course, you've got to take precautions mm-hmm. and you've got to, you know, look after yourself and look after others and do all that. We, what is safe anymore? No, nothing really. Or, and Or everything, depending on how you look at life. And I look at life that everything's going to be safe and I'm going to look after myself, my family, my guests, my staff, um, and just, you know, be sensible. And I have another wonderful, um, I have another most favorite saying shared to me by a dear old friend. She says, the problem with common sense is that it's not so common. (laughs) And I think that's what, (laughs) it's a great line. And you know, it's true. And, And if people would just apply common sense, just stop and think, what, what, if I travel, if I go out, if I don't wear a mask, if I do this, just apply some common sense. And if you apply the common sense, you'll find the answer. Um, but it's not so com- but it's but it's not so common. But having said that, the guests that I have uh, welcomed to Angama since um, uh, uh, President Kenyatta opened mm-hmm. the, the, the borders in in yes. on the first of August, honestly, they are as they arrive at the lodge, they are ripping off their masks and throwing them in the air with glee and delight. All my staff are masked. All the staff are tested when they come back from leave. They're on their leave cycles. They're tested. They have to have a PCR test to make sure that they're um, COVID negative. So the staff are all COVID negative, and the guests actually <laughs> just so delighted they can take their mask. Some keep their masks on, but I would say eighty percent of our guests, because it's lots of fresh air, lots of open spaces, lots of. I mean, distancing in the middle of Africa, for heaven's sakes, there's nobody around. And and you, you feel a cloud lifting off their shoulders. You feel that kind of a, this weight of what they've carried over the last year just kind of evaporate. And you hear the smile, you see, you hear the laughter and you see the smiles and you, it just feels like the world is, is coming right again. And it's so, it's beautiful to watch, I must tell you. You know, it's exactly what you're describing, Nikki, common sense and also being in nature. I really feel that nature heals. And one of the reasons why I wanted to do this podcast is because, and I don't know if this sounds cliche, some of the biggest lessons in travel I have learned in in safaris. By watching this, this sliver of a life cycle in front of me, of predators, of prey, of vegetation... I have learned a valuable lesson um, that they, I can apply to my life in a city. I've never felt ever in danger in a safari, ever, in any, in any shape or form. You yeah. know, Paula, it, it's not cliched. It's not cliched yeah. at all. And another sort of dimension to, to what you were describing is how the people of that land, they just, they just, are part of it all. Yes. They've been there for um, hundreds and hundreds of years and the Maasai, where I am in, in mm-hmm. Maasai land. And we have no, and what I love about Kenya, we have no fences. So the the, the, the safari, you know, the, the game reserves are not mm-hmm. fenced and they're all about community land. And, you know, when you, you'll see cows coming down, the beautiful Maasai cows coming down into the reserve, on the edge of the reserve to the salt lake with their cowbells going, getting, getting, getting. And then, you know, the, the Maasai warriors with their kind of red shookers and then back up the, the escarpment, they go back to um, grazing on the top of the Rafali. Um, but it's also natural. And you think, hang on, 
Well, but they're lions here. But the lions and cattle and, and Maasai have coexisted forever. And it just works. And it's also complicated. And I think when people see that, they go, okay, that chap is not frightened of the lion. The lion is more frightened of the Maasai warrior than the Maasai warrior is sure. the lion. And, um, and there's, a, there's a natural balance to things. And, um, and I love listening to my guests talking to, to our staff and asking them their, about their stories and their, their families and, and their histories and, and their, you know, more about their culture and their ways and their traditions. And, um, and they sit there, these moguls from New York, and they sit there absolutely enraptured by these stories. And storytelling is so much part of, of what we do every single day. And we train our guides to tell stories. We don't train our guides to spew information and yep. facts. Because with Google, you could you probably Google is more correct on most things than our yep. guides are. But, um, but if you share the stories, um, it's, just, it's just so charming. And even if you, um, I'll give you a little example of what mm -hmm. I'm saying is, imagine you're coming to, uh, to On Safari for the mm -hmm. first time, first time ever. And you might have seen a giraffe in a zoo. You've certainly seen them in books and on, on, on Discovery and whatever. But, but to, to see a giraffe, it's just an extraordinary creature. And the guide will drive along and he'll say, can anybody see anything? Now, he's about maybe four or five hundred meters from the animal sticking out up the trees. We can't miss it. And they guess it. Looking, looking, looking. <laughs> what? <laughs> Yes, and then he drives up to the animal and he'll stop maybe 50 meters away. And he'll say, oh, I wonder, look at that. And then look, and then you build up slowly. Then you drive up within a respectful distance of the animal, maybe 5, 10, 15 meters, whatever the case may be. And, and the thing then this guidance do is turn off the car, the vehicle, and keep his or her mouth yeah. shut. Because when you're sitting and you're looking from the hooves, all the way up the long legs, up the long leg, neck, up to the tip of their ears. You think, my God, I had no idea these animals were so tall. And there you there's that, ma that moment of magic where you're just looking at this creature and thinking, oh, man, this is, this is miraculous. Okay, you do not need to be told by the guide what the gestation period of a giraffe is or how many birds there are in the neck. It's irrelevant. Because that's not the magic. The magic is is just be. And then everybody says the cameras and they take the iPhones and take pictures. And, and then after three or four minutes, you can see they sit, sit down. Now they're looking expectantly at the guide for the next thing. And the guide will say, "What do you think this giraffe is doing?" Oh, then they look back at the animal again, and they look and they look and they can't see. And all the let's say the giraffe was feeding. That's one thing. But giraffe have this lovely thing where the the cud goes up and down their neck. I'm sure you've seen it. it looks like a yes. tennis ball. It flies up and down as it goes whoops, up the neck and then choo -choo -choo, <laughs> doo -doo -doo -doo, all the way down again. And I mean, you can watch that for 10 minutes because it's fascinating. Yes. Um, and then, or he'll say, do you think that giraffe is looking at something? And then all the kids go, oh, what, what? And they look to see, you know, is it a lion? Is it a what? So you tell the story about that animal in that moment, in that place. It's not gir giraffe generic. It's what is this delightful beautiful creature doing right now that is so fascinating to us and that's how you spin the stories about and um, when you take people on safari and the guests love it um so you know and it's memorable when you've watched that bull fly up and down a giraffe's neck you'll never forget yeah. it um but if you're too busy being told how many bones there are in the neck it's you you lose the magic so our our, our, our whole what we do in africa is we storytell 
and and it, and it goes not only for the animals, but obviously the story of the Great Rift Valley and our ancestors, and of course then the Maasai and, and their ways and the stories that they tell about how their grandfathers strangled the lion with their bare hands and how they were chased up a tree as a young herder by a leopard and oh, all the wonderful stories. And, um, and people love that. Don't we love stories? Remember when we were little, all we wanted was just one more story. Yes. And, and I think in the, in, in the other world, <laughs> we've lost the art, we've lost the, the art of, of, of storytelling. So we want to give our guests stories to take home. I think that's the biggest gift we can give them is to send them home with great stories that they can then share with, with their family and their friends. And a few months ago, another one of those extraordinary Mara moments happened right in front of guests' eyes. Uh, one of our guides, Alice, was driving around, gosh, was it early January? So not so long ago, mm -hmm. three o'clock in the afternoon, and she's driving along and she's, she's with her guests and she sees a a herd of elephants, one elephant's on, on one side of the road and the, the rest of the herd's on the other. And the one on the, on the, on the right-hand side is a female and she's running around in sort of agitated circles. And literally, she films it with her iPhone, literally with a trumpet, boom, out comes the baby. <gasps> boom, like that, in, in a silver parcel. It, like it, it was like a, like a gift from heaven. It's, so the, so the, the, the sack is silver. And there it lies. And within a second, all the bossy grandmothers and aunts from the herd come zooming <gasps> across the road. They push the they push the new mother out the way, like we do, like yes. I do with my grandchildren all the time. I keep pushing the mother out the way and say, uh, she said, you're undermining me. So I said, I am because I do it better than you do. <laughs> and push they, these elephants push the mama out the way. It might have been her first baby. <laughs> and they take over. They're in charge. And I think they can stand on the baby. There are so many... Yeah. old ladies fussing around this baby and blah, blah, blah. and then you think oh please don't sound the baby please don't sound on the baby and baby please break out of the sack you're going to suffocate you're going to suffocate <gasps> and one foot comes out and then another foot comes out it's it's the most beautiful thing all filmed with an iphone on the side of the road <laughs> and that just reminds you again of, of human behavior how we as you know i when you look at children who are brought up in in an extended family and And compared to children who are not, you know, I think yes. there's a there's a joy and the beauty of of having a whole bunch of bossy older women around you because and men and well, yes, men too. Yeah. Um, you know, because they just add a different dimension and, and it reminds you of what's important. Yeah. It's important to share your baby with all these people and not worry so much and apply a little bit of common sense and you know, let everybody pick up the baby and kiss the baby, you know. Don't put the baby wrap it up in, in cling wrap and say, Oh, germs, you know, yes. just be just And this is what you feel, what you feel when you watch this little clip um, of this little elephant being born. This is extraordinary. Boom! Out it came. Back in in one <laughs> in one second. Yes. When we can start moving a little bit more freely, we are going to choose again to be less detached and more, you know, closer to our family, closer to our village. Yes. I, you know that takes me to watching multi-generational families traveling. Now you can watch them in a ski resort. Yes. Grandpa sitting, drinking coffee. Mum and dad are kind of doing a few things sort of on the easy slopes and the teenagers are all flying around on the black slopes and they're all gathered together at some part of the day. And the same at the beach and the same in the cities. Come to a safari, you're stuck on a vehicle altogether. Yes. Grandpa, who's often paying for this trip, or grandma, <laughs> Has gets gets super gets super bang for his dollar because nobody can escape. <laughs> he's got them all. 
He's got them all tucked in right there. And you can see grandpa sits there beaming from ear to ear because now he's getting full value and he's got all his chickens about him. And then you, and you watch in the beginning, you know, and when the, the parents are like, put your phones away to the kids and da, 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 da. And slowly but surely it takes about 24 hours for everybody to find their rhythm. And, um, and, and then they, and then it all, and the guys are very good because they stop pulling in the youngsters, you know, and they don't nag them about phones. That's not our job to nag the kids about phones, mm -hmm. but slowly but surely they say, what do you think? Do you think looking to hunt something? Yeah. Okay. And then slowly you bring them into what's happening out there. And, and then you watch the families reconnect and you hear the laughter and you hear the story shared in the evenings. And you think, oh. as hoteliers, we think, oh, we did a good job today. We reconnected. We, we enabled the reconnection of a family. We didn't do it because the, the beauty of nature did it, but we've enabled them to, to, to reconnect with one another and, and be as, as families would all love to be. Talking about the colors and the landscape of Angamamara and the Mara, um, I was reading about the shuka that used to be made. The shuka is the cloth Correct. that the Maasai wear, which is very colorful yeah. and it's, it's red and it's blue. Usually it's red and blue. And where does the pattern come from? Because I, I was reading that it could have come from the influence of Scottish uh, missionaries, but that might not be correct. Paula, I, I think there are quite a few legends around the shuka. I think what we do know is that the original, the original shukas were ochre and, and uh, done from uh, probably box or clay or whatever. Oh. So that was dyed in a, mm -hmm. in a rich, rich ochre. Mm -hmm. And then the next color was like a deep, deep bluey purple color. So those were the, and they weren't patterned. It was you either wore this, I don't know, you know how that, that was dyed, but those were the, the colors. So, mm -hmm. and those colors of the ochres, the rich ochres and the sort of bluey purpley colors turned into kind of now what is today the modern sugar. I don't know where the patterns came from. Um, I'm sure there is some influence somewhere and I wouldn't be surprised because those missionaries were all over the place in Africa. But um, I think it's, it's, it's important to remember that the, that the shukas themselves were, were, were these ochres and these, and these deep purpley colors. And it is, you know, guests say, oh, well, of course the lions can see the red and they know it's a Maasai coming. And you have to be very polite and say, well, lions see only in black and, only in black and white. Mm -hmm. um, they don't see in color and they go, and people get so disappointed. <laughs> it's like, you know, the matadors and the toreadors, you know, they've got this red cape. Well, no, the bull, bull, the bull sees in black and white. She's not seeing no red nowhere. So, um, <laughs> so and you don't want to destroy that because it's kind of a lovely thing, you know, oh, there the lion sees the Maasai and he's red and he's on a high alert. Well, no, he's not. He's just seeing it in black and white and gray. Mm -hmm. um, but um, there's certainly, you know, the way the Maasai, move and they've always got their traditional um, uh, weapons with them. They've got a spear, they've got a rungu, and that's what the lion sees. He sees that outline of that tall man wrapped in something, holding something rather lethal in his hands. He says, well, that's trouble. But it's, it's, not, the, it's not the red of, of the shuka. <laughs> <Sadly>. <laughs> Running from a lion is a very unlikely occurrence while visiting the Mara. After all, lions are more scared of us than vice versa. But since that's where our ancestors started walking on two legs, a Rift Valley walkabout is a must, and a jog with a long-distance Kenyan runner is a dream come true, or at the very least, a survival of the fittest. I think one guest said to me, I can't remember, it must have been about three or four years ago, 
you know, because this doesn't fall into my um, ambit of, of, of interest in any way, which means going for a run. I just don't go for runs. Mm-hmm. And the guest said to me, you know, my, on my bucket list would be to run with a Kenyan. I thought, what? And then I realized, of course, if you're an athlete, if you're a runner of any kind, you know, the Kenyans are, are gods when it comes to running. Yeah. And so we started a little guest delight offering called Run with a Kenyan. And we've got the Angama Running Club, which we formed. We've got about uh-huh. six or eight guys who, who run, um, in the, and they take guests for a run. The Kenyans don't run, they float. We're, and don't forget we're at close to 6,000 feet above yes. sea level. Okay, so mm-hmm. now you're floating at 6,000 feet, and our guests mostly come from, you know, sea level, mostly. And, of course, now they are, they're trying to keep up with this Maasai that is floating along beside them. Yeah. Um, and I, I have said to my staff, whatever you do, please do not turn around and run backwards and chat to the guests because that really does push the point home that this is very easy for you and <laughs> very hard for them. But um, they come back from their run and they get presented with a T-shirt that says, I ran with a, with a, with a Kenyan and I survived. So it's just a little kind of fun thing. And our, our running guests absolutely love it. And the guys, when they run, they're in our red and blues, you know, which is our CI, the, the corporate sort of ID of, of, of Agama. And, you know, they look so good and they've got these beautiful long legs and they haven't broken a sweat in 10 kilometers. And my poor <laughs> guest comes staggering through the door. You know, they've, done, they've done six New York marathons and 12 Boston marathons and they've done all this. And, but they can't do 10 kilometers with, 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 with a Kenyan. But it's that fine. So that's, so that's another kind of, it's a, yeah, I would say it's a cultural thing, but it's, 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 it's you know, for, for, for guests who admire the great runners of, of Kenya, you know, the middle yeah. distance and long distance runners, um, it's, it's, such a, it's such a joy for them to be able to, and to go oh. back and, and brag a little bit that I ran with a Kenyan, you know, it was just great. Yeah. Yes. Are there still uh, a lot of coffee farms? Yes, we don't. We're not not where we are. Um, close mm-hmm. to us would be tea, um, but but when I say okay. close to us, probably a hundred kilometers away. Close to the equator is is the coffee and the tea, uh, because we also Angama also has a a, a travel business um, in Kenya called Angama Safaris, where we can do the whole trip for for our guests. We can do anywhere in East Africa, so they can land at at, at Nairobi Airport. Right. We can do. They can do Angama and they can do the gorillas in Rwanda and they can do Tanzania and the Seychelles and everything. But one of the experiences that we've, we've offered to our guests for Nairobi is to spend um, a morning with, with one of our, our more sort of um, bespoke small coffee producers, roast their own coffee and they do this and they kind of learn about Kenyan coffee. So it's a deep dive into Kenyan coffee. So that's one of the fun experiences we do. Um, we also do... Uh, what we call Nairobi, cool Nairobi, which is where you go with one of the kind of hipsters, young hipsters from from Nairobi, and you spend the morning with them, going to the various art galleries and um, Kenyan designers. So yeah, we've got some fun things that people can do in Nairobi to get closer to to what makes Kenya tick. But certainly, the coffee makes Kenya tick. It's absolutely delicious. I was also reading um, on your book, on your cookbook from Angama, that um, the kitchen garden called Shamba in Swahili is a place where guests can go in and, and almost forage for their for their salads or for their, their their veggies. Is that something that most guests like to do, even even guests who are not specifically uh, vegetarian? 
uh, um, all our guests love our shamba. And, you know, the shamba was, we needed it because we, um, for especially for things like um, different kinds of lettuce and all the herbs, because if we bring those in from, from other places, by the time they get to Angama, they're kind of a little bit bruised and a little bit squashed and flattened. So we thought, well, now we need to do now we need to do a, a, a lovely garden. And we offer the guests, they can I just come and walk through the garden and, and with, a, with the shamba keepers and, and kind of learn what's there. We've got a little Maasai medicinal garden in, in one corner. I see that our team have just put up an insect hotel and so all sorts of little surprises. There's a Maasai manyata in there, so all sorts of surprises. But if you're coming for lunch, we do. We greet you at the at the entrance of the shamba. We walk you through, and we give you a basket, and we say, "Pick your own." And that's very cheeky yeah. when you when you charge people what I charge to stay at Angam and then make them pick their own lunch. It's really taking it to another level. But they absolutely yeah. love it. And we then they come onto the, the we've got these two huge old moth trees, um, beautiful trees under on a deck, and then there's a, a lovely base of. Uh, begin a ceramic basin there we wash off all the, the herbs and the lettuces and if they've picked some fennel we wash that and we slice it they've taken some lovely fresh celery we clean that and put it and then we unpack everything we, they make a big salad of what we call a beautiful shamba salad with nasturtium flowers and all the things that make it look so joyful and then on the table is it's only vegetarian so it's there is a loaf of sourdough bread there's a cheese board there's probably a roasted beetroot and carrot salad. There might be a tabbouleh salad mm-hmm. or, a, or a couscous salad and um, some hummus and lots of bread and, and pink wine and beer. And then people just sit there and they just eat. And actually, it's really strange, but the salad tastes different if you've just picked it and eat it. <laughs> I didn't think it, it would, but it really truly does. And it's a it's a, an absolute joy for guests to do that. And that experience is um, private. So you're the only people doing mm-hmm. it. So whether you're two or whether you're 10, depending how big your group is, yeah. you're the only people in the shamba. It's not not for, for other guests. Do you think this is the way we are going to travel more and more in to, the, to places like Angamamara where we can be at a safe distance and um, especially to really absorb nature? Yes, I, I think so. I mean, I was feeling it. I've certainly been feeling it over the last five years anyway. You know, as, as people have ticked off the great cities and ticked off, you know, doing what they need to do and they've, and they've discovered, you know, uh, sort of adventure travel, nature travel. I mean, ours is very much soft adventure. It's kind of real soft adventure. But for some people, it's, it's quite, you know, we're going to Africa and it feels a bit kind of, you know, big and scary. But it is soft and it's, it's very kind of spoiling. But I think when, you, when you've done that kind of holiday and you go back and you think, I feel like a different person. I don't know why. I can't really put my finger onto it. I feel like a nicer person. And I think that's what I call about not only falling in love with the world again, but falling in love with yourself again. And please, if you've done it right, you've fallen in love with your spouse again, and you've fallen in love with your children again, you've fallen in love with everybody. <laughs> and, you know, I think nature enables that. You know, if you're dashing around yeah. Paris, it's, yeah, you have lots of fun and lots of pictures, but, you know, you don't get that sense of, sharing the beauty and wonder of, of, of what's going on around you with your loved ones in a in a very uncomplicated quiet peaceful place and and I think I think yeah I th- I'm, I'm, I'm I'm hoping that there'll be more and more of this um, nature travel uh, offerings around the world I mean Latin America is full of the most beautiful places you can do this um, mm-hmm. yeah, amazing I mean 
I've traveled quite extensively in the Pantanal and in um, in Costa Rica and in the in the in in Peru, in, mm-hmm. you know, along the um, on those tributaries going to the Amazon. And gosh, yeah. it's beautiful. It really is beautiful. And I've also had the opportunity once of going to an extraordinary um, uh, lodge called Ultima Thule in Alaska. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, where you go, you fly to Anchorage and then you take a charter northwest back towards the Canadian border. So you're going away from the coast up into the into the Wrangles, centralized Wrangles National Park. I think it is a park that straddles both Canada and Alaska. And then you land mm-hmm. in a little place and then you get on a plane and then you fly to the lodge. And the closest road to the lodge is 150 miles away. Everything comes in by air. And, you know, those, yeah. those Alaskan pilots are another league. And I felt so small. And I felt for the first time in my life what my guests feel like when they come to Africa. I stepped off the plane and I felt... Yeah. I felt quite vulnerable in, 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 an emotion, yeah. in an emotional way, not in a safety way. I felt, golly. No. I, um, and, and I also felt I knew that I, would, I was going to do exactly what everybody around here told me to do because they're in charge and I'm not. And what a blessing that was. You just let everything go. You think, okay, just tell me what to do and I'll do it because you know more about this, this extraordinary place. I mean, can you imagine? There's no roads there. And then every day your safari is in a – in a super cub airplane so you fly around the high tops and you land on glaciers and you land next to rivers and you say hello to the to the grizzlies and it's just the most incredible experience and it was so important for me and there's a blog on it somewhere in our in our blog you can read the story i wrote it there um Mm -hmm. it was so important for me to understand to jump back in the skin of my guests to understand how they feel that awe and that wonder yes. and that fragility and like I'm just a speck, <laughs> just a speck. <laughs> and you know you forget that when every day you go to work and you know on the WhatsApp group it says be careful the elephants behind the the pavilion and please there's some there's some buffalo walking around past the shamba and you know we know that it's it's part of our life you know we have yeah. to know where all the animals are and we work around them and you get a little bit nonchalant but and. And when guests arrive, it's just so important that I now understand and I can feel their, feel that same feeling of awe and, and fragility in, in the nicest way. It was fantastic. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. A pleasure. I'm very much looking forward to seeing you and, and hope to see you Thank very you soon. Paul. Thank you for this opportunity. And thanks to our listeners for coming on this journey. As a special thanks, the first three listeners to leave a comment nothing bad, I hope, will receive the Angama Mara cookbook. Email us to podcast at palula.us. Please visit the Palula blog for photos of the places discussed in this podcast and to see the video of the elephant giving birth. Next week, I am talking to Fred Ronco, a Maasai naturalist about growing up in the Mara and the Maasai culture. I hope you will join us. Until then.